You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 98, by Rudolf Steiner. Eight, uh, it's the Lecture Notes to 18 Lectures, entitled Nature and Spirit Beings, Their Activity in Our Visible World, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is Lecture 4, given in Cologne on the 25th of December, 1907, entitled The Mysteries, a Christmas and Easter poem by Goethe. Anyone who was in Cologne Cathedral tonight could see there the three letters in illuminated lettering, C.M.B. As is well known, they stand for the names of the so-called three kings, called Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, according to the tradition of the Christian Church. For Cologne, these names evoke very special memories. There is an old legend that the bones of these magi, after they had become bishops and had died, were brought here to Cologne some time later. There is another legend connected with this, which says that a Danish king once came here to Cologne and brought three crowns for the three kings. When he returned home, he had a dream. The three magi appeared to him in the dream and handed him three cups. The first cup contained gold, the second cup frankincense, and the third cup myrrh. When the Danish king awoke, the three kings had disappeared, but the cups had remained. They stood before him, the three gifts he had kept back from his dream. There is something extraordinarily profound in this legend. We are told that the king rose in a dream to a certain insight into the spiritual world, whereby he became aware of the symbolic meaning of these three kings, these three magi from the Orient, who offered gold, frankincense, and myrrh at the birth of Jesus Christ. And from this knowledge he was left with a lasting good. Those three human virtues which are symbolically indicated in the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, self-knowledge in the gold, self-piety, that is, the piety of the innermost self, something we might also call self-giving in the frankincense, and self-improvement and self-development, or also the preservation of the eternal in the self, in the myrrh. How did it become possible for the king to receive these three virtues as gifts from another world? This became possible for him because he tried to penetrate with his whole soul into the deep symbol that lies enclosed in the three kings who offered their gifts to Jesus Christ. There are many, many features in the Christ legend that lead us deeply into the greatest variety of meanings of what is meant by the Christ principle and what it is supposed to do in the world. One of the most profound features of the Christ legend is the worship and offering of the three magi, the three kings from the East. And it is not without a deeper understanding that we may approach this fundamental symbolism of the Christian tradition. Later the view developed that the first king was the representative of the Asian peoples, the second of the kings the representative of the European peoples, and the third of the kings the representative of the African peoples. Wherever Christianity was to be understood as the religion of earthly harmony, the three kings and their homage were increasingly seen as a confluence of the various currents and religious directions in the world into one principle, the Christ principle. Those who at that time, when this legend took on such a form, had penetrated into the mystery principles of esoteric Christianity, saw in the Christ principle not merely a power which had intervened in the development of humanity, but they saw in the being which incarnated itself in Jesus of Nazareth a cosmic power, a power which went far beyond the merely human which prevails in our time. They saw in the Christ principle a power which, however, represents for human beings an ideal 
of the human being lying in a distant future development, but such an ideal which the human being can only approach if they understand the whole world increasingly in the spirit. They initially saw in the human being a small being, a small world, a microcosm, which was to them an image of the macrocosm, the great all-encompassing world, which contains everything that the human being can in the first instance perceive with the outer senses, see with the eyes, hear with the ears, but which also contains everything that the spirit could perceive, what the lowest and what also the most clear-sighted spirit could perceive. For this is how the world appeared to the esoteric Christian in the early days. Everything they saw in the firmament, everything they saw on our earth, everything they saw as thunder and lightning, as storm and rain and sunshine, as the course of the stars, as the rising and setting of the sun, as the rising and setting of the moon, all this was a gesture to them, was something like mimicry, was to them an outer expression of inner spiritual processes. The esoteric Christian looks at the cosmic edifice as they look at a human body. When they look at the human body, it breaks down into different parts, head, arms, hands, and so on. When they look at the human body, they see hand movements, movements of the eyes, movements of the facial muscles. But the limbs and the movements of the individual limbs are for them the expression of the inner spiritual and soul experiences. And just as in the parts of the human being and their movements, they looked into that which is eternal and spiritual, so the esoteric Christian saw in the movements of the heavenly bodies, in the light that flows to the human being from the heavenly bodies, in the rising and setting of the sun, and in the rising and setting of the moon, in all this, they saw the outer expression of divine spiritual beings that flood through space. All these natural phenomena were for them deeds of the gods, gestures of the gods, mimicry of the divine spiritual beings. But also everything that happens in humankind, when people found social communities, when people submit to moral commandments, when they regulate their actions among themselves by laws, when they create tools for themselves out of the forces of nature, albeit with the forces of nature, but in a way such that they were not directly given by nature in this form. Everything that the human being does more or less unconsciously was, for the esoteric Christian, an outer expression of inner divine spiritual activity. But the esoteric Christian did not stop at such general forms, but pointed to very specific individual gestures, individual parts of the world physiognomy, the world expression, in order to see in these individual parts very specific expressions of the spiritual. They pointed to the sun and said, the sun is not just an outer physical body. This outer physical body of the sun is the body of a soul spiritual being who rules over soul spiritual beings who are the rulers, the leaders of all earthly destinies, who are the leaders of all outer natural events on earth, but also the leaders of everything that happens in human social life, in the behavior of all people toward each other as determined by law. When they looked up at the sun, the esoteric Christian, they worshipped in the sun the outer revelation of their Christos. At first, Christos was the soul of the sun to them, S-U-N. And what the esoteric Christian said was this, From the beginning the sun was the body of Christos, but human beings on earth and the earth itself were not yet ripe to receive the spiritual light the Christ-light emanating from the sun. Therefore people had to be prepared for the Christ-light. And now the esoteric Christian looked up at the moon. Then they saw how the moon reflected back the light of the sun, but was weaker than the light of the sun itself. And then they said to themselves, If I look at the sun with my physical eyes, 
I am blinded by its radiant light. If I look at the moon, then I am not blinded. It gives me back the radiant sunlight in a weakened form. In this weakened sunlight, in this moonlight shining down from the earth, the esoteric Christian saw the physiognomic expression of the old Jehovah principle, the expression for the religion of the old law. And they said, before the Christ principle, the sun of righteousness could appear on the earth, S-U-N. The Yahweh principle had to send down this light of righteousness upon the earth, weakened in the law, in preparation. Thus that which lies in the old Jehovah principle, in the old law, the spiritual light of the moon, was for the esoteric Christian the reflected spiritual light of the higher Christ principle. And with the adherence of the oldest mysteries, the esoteric Christian, even deep into the Middle Ages, saw in the sun the expression of the spiritual light governing the earth, the Christ light, and in the moon the expression of the reflected Christ light, which in its direct nature would blind human beings. And in the earth itself, the esoteric Christian, together with the adherents of the oldest mysteries, saw that which at times concealed, veiled the blinding sunlight of the spirit to them. They saw in the earth the physical expression of a spirit, just as they saw in all other bodies the expression of something spiritual. They imagined that when the sun shines perceptibly on the earth, when from spring and through the summer it sends down its rays and makes all budding and burgeoning life shoot out of the earth, when it has then reached its climax in the long summer days, then the esoteric Christian imagined that the sun nourishes the outer burgeoning life, physical life, in the plants that sprouted from the ground, in the animals that could develop their fertility here in these periods, the esoteric Christian saw the same principle in an outer physical way that they saw in the beings for which the sun is the outer expression. But then, when the days become shorter, when autumn and winter approach, the esoteric Christian said, the sun increasingly withdraws its physical power from the earth. But in the same measure as the physical power of the sun is withdrawn from the earth, the spiritual power grows, and it then flows most strongly to the earth when those days come which are the shortest, with the long nights, in the periods which have subsequently been fixed by the Christmas festival. The human being cannot see this spiritual power of the sun. They would see it, said the esoteric Christian, if the inner power of spiritual vision were present in them. And the esoteric Christian still had an awareness of what was a basic conviction and basic knowledge of the mystery pupils in the most ancient times up to more recent times. In those nights which today are fixed by the Christmas festival, the mystery pupils were prepared for the perception of inner spiritual vision, so that they could see inwardly, spiritually, that which, according to its physical power, withdraws most from the earth at this time. In the long Christmas winter night, the mystery pupil was brought to the point that at midnight they became capable of such a vision. Then the earth no longer covered the sun, which was behind the earth. It became transparent to them. They saw through the transparent earth the spiritual light of the sun, the Christ light. This fact, which reflects a profound experience of the mystery pupils, was recorded in the expression, seeing the sun at midnight. There are regions where churches, which are otherwise open all day, are closed at midday. This is a fact that links Christianity to the traditions of ancient religious faiths. Within ancient religious faiths, the mystery pupils said from their experience, at noon, when the sun is at its highest, when it unfolds its strongest physical power, then the gods sleep. And they sleep the deepest sleep in summer, when the sun unfolds its strongest physical power. But they are most awake on the night of Christmas, when the outer physical power of the sun is weakest. 
we see. All beings who want to develop their outer physical power look up to the sun when the sun rises in spring. They strive to receive the outer physical power of the sun. But then, when at summer noon the physical power of the sun flows most strongly from the sun to the earth, its spiritual power is weakest. But in the midnight of winter, when the sun radiates the weakest physical power down to the earth, then the human being sees the spirit of the sun through the earth, which has become transparent for them. The esoteric Christian felt that by immersing themselves in Christian esotericism, they were coming ever closer to that power of inner vision through which they could completely fulfill their feeling and thinking, their impulses of will, by looking into this spiritual sun. And then the mystery pupil was brought to a vision which had a very real meaning. As long as the earth is opaque, the individual parts of the earth appear inhabited by people who develop individual faiths, but the unifying bond is not there. The human races are scattered like the climates. The opinions of people on earth are scattered, but there is no unifying element. But to the extent that human beings begin to look through the earth into the sun by their inner power of sight, to the extent that this star appears to them through the earth, the faiths of human beings unite into the great united brotherhood of humanity. And those who guided the separated great masses of human beings in the truth of the higher planes to initiation into the higher worlds, they were introduced as the Magi. There were three of them because different powers come to expression in different places on earth. Humanity, therefore, had to be guided in various ways. But the star that rises behind the earth appears as a unifying force. It leads the scattered people together, and so they pray to the physical incarnation of the sun star, which had appeared as the star of peace. In this way, the religion of peace, of harmony, of world peace, of human brotherhood, was associated at a cosmic and human level with the ancient Magi who laid down the best gifts they had for humanity at the cradle of the incarnated Son of Man. The legend recorded this beautifully by telling that the Danish king ascended to the knowledge of the Magi, the three kings, and when he had ascended, they left him their three gifts. First, the gift of wisdom and self-knowledge, Second, the gift of devoted piety in self-giving. And third, the gift of the victory of life over death in the power and cultivation of the eternal part of the self. All those who understood Christianity in this way saw in it the profound spiritual scientific idea of the unification of religions. For they were of the opinion, indeed they were firmly convinced, that all who grasp Christianity in this way can advance toward the highest degree of development of humanity. One of the last Germans to have grasped Christianity in this esoteric way is Goethe, and Goethe has set out for us this kind of Christianity, this kind of religious reconciliation, this kind of theosophy, in the profound poem titled The Mysteries. It may have remained a fragment, but it shows us in a profoundly significant way the inner soul development of a human being who is permeated and convinced by the feelings and ideas just indicated. We first hear how Goethe wants to point us to the path of pilgrimage of such a person and how he indicates to us that this path of pilgrimage can lead us astray, that it is not easy for a person to find it and that one must have patience and devotion in order to reach the goal. If a person possesses these, they will find the light they seek. Let us hear the beginning of the poem. Quote, a wondrous song is here prepared for many. Hear it with joy. Tell all from far and near. The way will lead you out o'er mount and valley. Now is the view obscured now wide and clear. And if the path should glide into the bushes that you have gone astray, you need not fear. 
For by a persevering, patient climb, we shall draw near our goal when it is time. But no one will, despite profound reflection, unravel all the wonders hidden here. Our Mother Earth brings forth so many flowers, and many shall find something to revere. Maybe that one will gloomily forsake us, another stays with gestures full of cheer. For many wandering pilgrims flows the spring to each a different pleasure it will bring. This is the situation to which we are introduced. We are shown a pilgrim who, if we were to ask him, would not be able to tell us intellectually what we have just explained as an esoteric Christian idea, but a pilgrim in whose heart and soul these ideas live, transformed into feelings. It is not easy to find everything that has been secreted into this poem, which is called The Mysteries. Goethe has clearly indicated it, a process that takes place in the person in whom the highest ideas, thoughts and conceptions are transformed into feelings and sentiments. How does this transformation take place? We live through many incarnations, from one incarnation to the next. In each one we learn more and many things. Each one provides many opportunities to gain new experiences. It is not possible for us to carry everything and every detail from one incarnation to the next. When a human being is reborn, it is not necessary for everything that they learned earlier to come to life in every detail. But if a person has learned much in one incarnation, when they then die and are reborn, not all their ideas need to come to life, but that person comes to life with the fruits of their former life, with the fruits of what they learned. Their sentiments, their feeling, correspond to the knowledge of their earlier incarnations. In Goethe's poem, we here have expressed a wonderful thing in that we encounter a human being who, in the simplest words, as if from the mouth of a child and not in intellectual form or as an idea, proclaims the highest wisdom as the fruit of earlier knowledge. He has transformed this knowledge into feeling and sentiment, and is thereby called to guide others who have perhaps learned more by way of ideas. Such a pilgrim with a mature soul, who has transformed much into direct feeling and sentiment, which he has gathered in earlier incarnations, such a pilgrim we have before us in Brother Mark. He is sent as a member of a secret fraternity with an important mission to another secret fraternity. He travels through various regions and, being tired, comes to a mountain. He finally walks up the path to the summit. Every line in this poem has a deep meaning. When he has climbed the mountain, he sees a monastery in a nearby valley. This monastery is the dwelling place of another fraternity to which he has been sent. Above the gate of the monastery he sees something special. He sees the cross, but of a special kind, the cross entwined with roses. And he speaks meaningful words that can only be understood by those who know how often that watchword has been spoken in the secret fraternities. Quote, who added to the cross the wreath of roses? Close quote. And from the center of the cross he sees three rays emanating as from the sun. He does not need to evoke the meaning of this profound symbolism before his soul in concepts. In his soul, his mature soul, there lives a sense and feeling for it. His mature soul knows everything that lies within it. What does the cross mean? He knows that the cross expresses many things, including the threefold lower nature of the human being, the physical body, the etheric body, and the astral body. In this, the I, capital, is born. In the Rose Cross, we have the fourfold human being, the physical human being, the etheric human being, and the astral human being in the cross, and in the Roses, the I. Why Roses for the I? Esoteric Christianity added the Roses to the cross because it saw in the Christ principle the call to raise the eye, insofar as it is born in the three bodies, to an ever higher and higher eye. It saw in the Christ principle 
the power to carry this eye upward more and more. The cross is the sign of death in a very special sense. Goethe also expresses this beautifully elsewhere when he says, quote, And until thou truly hast this dying and becoming, thou art but a troubled guest or the dark earth roaming. Close quote. Die and become. Overcome that which is first given to you in the lower three bodies. Kill it off. But do not kill it off in order to desire death, but to purify that which is in these three bodies so that you may gain the strength in the eye to assimilate ever more perfection. By killing off what is given to you in the three lower bodies, the power of perfection enters into the eye. In the eye, the Christian is meant to assimilate, in the Christ principle, the power of perfection right into the blood. This power is to work right into the blood. The blood is the expression for the eye. In the red roses, the esoteric Christian saw that which in the blood cleansed and purified by the Christ principle, and thus in the purified eye, leads the human being up to their higher nature, which transforms the astral body into spirit self, the etheric body into life spirit, the physical body into spirit human being. Thus in the rose cross, which is connected with the three rays, the Christ principle comes to meet us in profound symbolism. The pilgrim brother Mark, who arrives here, knows that he is in a place where the deepest meaning of Christianity is understood. Quote, Full weary by a long and tiring journey, with a sublimest motive undertaken, a pilgrim brother Mark came through the thicket, with staff in hand his footsteps to sustain and longing for a little food and drinking, one beauteous eve he reached a quiet plain, its wooded gorges soothing hope bestowed beneath a friendly roof to find abode. But lo, a path he scarcely can distinguish, high up a mountain steep before him wending, he follows it as more and more it rises in curvings in and out the boulders bending until again by sunlight warm enveloped he turns and sees how fast he is ascending. At last the summit comes within his sight, inspiring him with heartfelt deep delight. Next it the sun, majestic in its setting, enthroned among clouds within the darkening sky. Now for the peak, for all his weary toiling, he hopes to be rewarded there on high or looking all the country for him spreading, a human home he will perchance espy. And while he climbs, oh, sound how full of cheer the chime of bells is wafted to his ear. And as at length he has attained the summit, below a softly sloping valley lies, his quiet look with inward pleasure brightens before the forest, Full of joy he spies a stately building in a greening field, which the departing sun with luster dyes. Ere long he nears through meadows dewy damp a monastery lit with gleaming lamp. He soon arrives outside the quiet homestead, with hope and peacefulness his soul enfolding, and on the arch above the closed portal a symbol full of mystery beholding. He stands and ponders, whispers words of prayer, the deep devotion of his heart unfolding. He ponders long, what does this sign convey? The sun has set, the chiming dies away. The sign he sees erected here on high that brings consoling hope to all mankind, which many thousands pledged their lives to shield, to which in fervor prayed the human mind that has destroyed the bitter powers of death on victor's banners fluttered in the wind. A stream of comfort permeates his being. He sees the cross and bows his head in seeing. He feels anew the faith of all on earth, the power of salvation streaming thence. But as he looks, he feels his very soul pervaded by a new and unknown sense. Who added to the cross the wreath of roses? 
It is entwined by blooming clusters dense, profusely spreading, just as though they could endow with softness even the rigid wood. While light and silvery clouds around it soaring seem heavenward with cross and roses flowing, and from the midst like living waters streaming, a threefold ray from out one core is glowing. But not a word surrounds the holy token, the meaning of the symbol clearly showing, and while the dusk is gathering gray and grayer, he stands and ponders and is lost in prayer. Close quote. That which is to be found as the spirit of the deepest Christianity within this building is expressed by the cross entwined with roses. And now that the pilgrim enters, he is truly received by this spirit. As he enters, he becomes aware that in this house there prevails not this religion or that religion of the world, but that in this house there prevails the higher unity of the religions of the world. Inside this house, he tells an old member of the fraternity that is here on whose behalf and why he has come. He is received and hears that a fraternity of twelve brothers lives in seclusion in this house. These twelve brothers are the representatives of different groups of people on earth. Each one of the brothers is the representative of a religious faith. We will find that a person is not admitted here when they are still young in years, when they are still immature. But a person is admitted when they have looked around in the world, when they have struggled with the pleasures of the world and the sufferings of the world, when they have worked and been active in the world and have risen to a free outlook over their narrowly delimited field. Only then will a person be admitted and accepted into the circle of the twelve, and these twelve, each of whom represents a religious faith of the world, live here in peace and harmony with each other, for they are led by a thirteenth, who surpasses them all in the perfection of the human self, who surpasses them all in a wide outlook over human circumstances. And how is it indicated by Goethe that this thirteenth is the representative of true esotericism, the bearer of the faith of the rosy cross? Goethe indicates it to us by saying, He was among us. Now we are plunged into the greatest grief because he wishes to leave us, he wishes to depart from us, but he considers it right to part from us now. He wishes to ascend to higher regions where he no longer needs to reveal himself in an earthly body. He is allowed to ascend, for he has risen to a point which Goethe sets out in such a way that he says, for every faith there is the possibility of approaching the highest unity. When each of the twelve religions is ripe to establish harmony, then the thirteenth, who previously created harmony externally, can depart. And we are told beautifully how this perfection of the self is attained. We are first told a life story of the thirteenth, but the brother who received the pilgrim Mark knows many things that the great leader of the twelve could not say. Some features of deep esoteric significance are now told by this brother to the pilgrim Mark. It is said that when the thirteenth was born, a star announced his existence on earth. This is a direct link to the star that guided the Magi and its significance. This star has an enduring significance. It points the way to self-knowledge, self-giving, and self-perfection. It is the star that opens up the understanding of the gifts that the Danish king received through the apparition that came to him in a dream, the star that appears at the birth of everyone who is ready to receive the Christ principle in themselves. And something else was revealed as well. It was revealed that he had developed to that level of religious harmony which brings peace and harmony to the soul. This is symbolized in a deeply significant way in that when the thirteenth appears in the world, a vulture swoops down, but instead of wreaking havoc, it spreads peace among the doves. We are told still another thing. As his little sister lies in the cradle, a viper coils itself around her. The thirteenth, still a child, kills the viper. 
This is a wonderful illustration of how a mature soul, for only a mature soul can achieve such a thing after many incarnations, kills the viper in early youth, that is, overcomes the lower astral being. The viper is the symbol for the lower astral being. The sister is our own etheric body, around which the astral body winds itself. He kills the viper for his sister. Then we are told how he obediently conformed to what was initially demanded of him in the parental home. He obeyed his harsh father. The soul commutes its knowledge, ideas, and thoughts. Then healing powers develop in the soul, through which healing work can be undertaken in the world. Miraculous powers develop. They are expressed in that he causes a spring to emerge from the rock with his sword. It is intentionally shown here how his soul follows the trail of the scriptures. Thus the superior, the representative of humanity, the chosen one, who works here in the community of the twelve, of the great secret order which has taken on the mission for humanity under the Rosicrucian symbol to harmonize the faiths spread throughout the world, gradually matures as the thirteenth. In this way we are first acquainted in a profound way with the state of soul of the person who has hitherto guided our fraternity of twelve. Quote, At last he knocks. The myriad stars above him look down with shining eyes as they appear. The portal opes, and he is bidden welcome by brethren wont to comfort and to cheer. So he relates how far by hill and valley the will of higher beings led him here. They stand amazed, for well they see their guest was sent to them by heavenly behest. They crowd around him, and their inmost being they feel by a mysterious power stirred. Their breath they hold to listen, for he rouses an echo in their hearts with every word. Like deepest lore yet uttered by a child, the wisdom flowing from his lips is heard. He seems so innocent, like crystal clear, as though descended from another sphere. At last an aged brother cries, O welcome, if with consoling hope thy path is blessed. Thou seest us, our souls are moved within us by thee, and yet we can but stand oppressed. Our greatest bliss from us is being taken, anxiety and dread disturb our rest. Thou comest as a stranger yet to share portentous hours of mourning and of care. For he, alas, who all of us united, to whom as father and as friend we bow, who light and fortitude within us kindled, our leader is prepared to leave us now. Yea, he himself his passing has predicted, refusing though to tell us when and how. The mystery of what must needs befall brings bitter tribulation to us all. Thou seest us gray and aged every one, by nature destined for repose and rest. Not one was here admitted who a youth desired to fly from worldly joy and zest. Each one has met with life's vicissitudes, its burdens, pleasures, and its anxious quest, until matured, too old to longer roam, within these walls we found a sheltering home. The noble man, who has led us to this haven, within his heart the peace of God does dwell. Along the path of life we walk together, his every action I remember well. But now his fervent praying, his seclusion, the hour of his departing must foretell. How small is man! Oh, would that he could give his life so that a greater one might live! This is my heart's profound and only wish. Fulfillment is denied to my desire. How many have preceded me in death! How bitter is the thought he must expire! Had he been here with hearty welcome's warmth, he would have given all thou didst require. But now in spirit regions dwells his mind, already far from those he leaves behind. Each day, one hour, he lingers in our midst, and speaks to us by strange emotions stirred. 
the wondrous paths that providence has led. Within his life he lauds with every word. We hark and heed, for after ages hoarding with care the merest trifle that occurred, while one writes down his words to make us sure his memory shall live both true and pure. I hear him speak, but oh, how much there is that I would rather far myself relate, for all is still alive within my mind. The least of circumstances I would state, impatiently I list, can scarce conceal how sore it is thus silently to wait. One day I shall no more restrain my zeal, the splendors of this beauteous life reveal. I should disclose how first an angel's voice his coming to his mother prophesied, and how when he was christened in the sky a star with brilliant luster was descried. How down a vulture swooped with mighty wings to settle by the gentle pigeon's side, but not to pounce on them in greedy wildness, a harbinger, he seemed, of peace and mildness. How as a child a viper he destroyed, this a miracle he ne'er has told. He found his sister peacefully asleep, the clinging reptile round her arm was rolled. The nurse had fled and left the babe alone. He killed the poisonous snake, resolved and bold. His mother came and saw the daring deed, and thrilled with joy she found her daughter freed. He ne'er related that a spring arose from out the barren rock before his sword, and as a brook with rippling waves alive, its plenteous waters down the hillside poured. Even now, as quick as forth it gushed at first, it bickers silver sparkling over the sward. But those who saw the wondrous stream appear dared not to drink or come by solemn fear. For when a man excels by gifts of nature, it is no wonder if his life is blessed. In him we worship the Creator's power through feeble human clay made manifest. But he who overcomes himself has gained the greatest triumph, stood the hardest test, and well may he to all the world be shown, yea, this is he, this deed is his alone. With all our strength we strive to live and labor, wherever by fate our twisting paths be wended. Whereas the world oppresses, ever impeding, and seeks to tear us from the way intended, within this inner storm and outer struggle, our spirit hears a word scarce comprehended. The power that holds constrained all humankind, the victor or himself no more can bind. Close quote. Thus this man, who had overcome himself, that is, the I which is first assigned to the human being, became the superior of the select fraternity just characterized, and so he leads the twelve. He has led them to the point where they are now so mature that he may leave them. Our brother Mark is then led further into the rooms where the twelve are at work. How did they work? This work is of a special kind, and we are made aware that this work is work in the spiritual world. A person whose eyes look only to the physical plane, whose senses see only the physical and that which is done by human beings in the physical world, cannot easily imagine that there is other work which may be much more essential and important than that which is undertaken outwardly on the physical plane. Work from the higher planes is much more important for humanity. However, the conditions must be fulfilled that anyone who wishes to work on the higher planes must first have completed their work on the physical plane. These twelve, they have done it. Therefore their work together has an elevated meaning for the service of humanity. Our brother Mark is led into the room where the twelve were together for their assemblies, and here he encounters the way they work together in a profoundly symbolic way. What each of the brothers has to contribute from out of his own particular nature to this way of working together is expressed in a special symbol above the seat of each of the twelve. There are many symbols which express in a meaningful way 
what each one has to contribute to the common task, consisting of spiritual activity, so that these currents flow together to form a stream of spiritual life which flows through the world and gives strength to the rest of humanity. There are such fraternities, such centers, from which such currents go out and have an effect on the rest of humanity. Above the seat of the thirteenth, Brother Mark again sees the sign, the cross entwined with roses, this sign which is at the same time a symbol of fourfold human nature, and which in the red roses is the symbol for the purified blood or I principle, the principle of the higher human being. And then we see how that which is to be overcome by this emblem is placed as a special symbol to the left and right of the seat of the thirteenth. On the right he sees the fire-colored dragon. It represents the astral being of the human being. It was well known in Christian esotericism that the human soul can surrender to the three lower bodies. If it surrenders to them, then it is ruled by the lower life of threefold bodily nature. This is expressed in astral perception through the dragon. It is not a mere symbol, but a very real sign. In the dragon is expressed what must first be overcome. In the passions, in these forces of astral fire that are part of the physical human being, in this dragon, the Christian esotericism which inspired this poem and which spread within Europe saw that which humanity had received from the hot zone from the south. From the south comes that part of the human being which humanity has brought with it as the hot passions, which is more directed toward lower sensuality. The first impulse of which people had a sense that it could fight and overcome this was the one which flowed down in the influences of the cooler north. The influence of the colder north, the descent of the eye into the threefold bodily nature, is expressed according to ancient symbolism taken from the constellation of the bear by the hand reaching into the bear's mouth. The lower human nature, that which expresses itself in the fiery dragon, is overcome. And that which has thus been preserved in the higher kind of animal nature was represented in the bear. And the eye, which has developed beyond the dragon nature, was represented in a profound reference by the human hand reaching into the bear's mouth. On both sides of the rose cross appear the things which must be overcome by the rose cross, and it is the rose cross which challenges the human being to purify themselves to an ever higher level. Thus the poem does indeed present the principle of esoteric Christianity to us in the deepest way, and draws our attention above all to that which should especially come before our souls at such a festival as the one we are celebrating today. The eldest of the resident brothers, belonging to the fraternity, expressly makes clear to the pilgrim Mark that what they are doing here together is done in the spirit, that this is spiritual life. This work for humanity on the spiritual plane has a special meaning. The brothers have experienced life's joys and sorrows. They have been through battles outside. They have done work outside in the world. Now they are here, but here, too, work is continuing for the further development of humanity. It is indicated to the pilgrim, Mark, you have now seen as much as can be shown to the pupil to whom the first gateway is opened. You have been shown in significant symbols how the human being's ascent should be. But the second gateway encloses higher secrets, how humanity is worked on from higher worlds. And you can only experience these higher secrets after longer preparation. Only then can you enter through the other gateway. Deep secrets are expressed in this poem. Quote, in him I scarce as virtue may denote the power of good, which even his youth inspired, and taught him to respect his father's word, when harshly he his services required. With duties burdening his leisure hours, the son obeyed with ardor, never tired, 
like some poor boy who, friendless and astray, is glad to work for but a trifling pay. On foot he joined the warriors in the field, in lowering tempest and in dazzling light. The horses he did tend, the meals prepare, and armed the soldiers ready for the fight. Oft, as a messenger, both keen and fleet, he hastened through the woods by day and night. To live for others, both in thought and action, seemed but to give him joy and satisfaction. And brave and cheerful always, in the strife he sought the arrows scattered on the ground. Then hastily he gathered curing herbs, with which the burning wounds he cooled and bound. And just as if his very touch were healing, ere long the sufferers were strong and sound. How all regarded him with joy and pride! Alone his father seemed not satisfied. Even as a ship, despite its heavy load from port to port with speedy lightness sailing, he bore the burden of his parents' word, that in obedience never he should be failing. As pleasure is for boys, for youth's distinction, for him his father's will was all prevailing. So that he might demand whatever he would, each task was soon fulfilled, each test was stood. At last the father yielded and acknowledged the merit of his son in word and deed. While of a sudden all his sternness vanished, he gave the youth a swift and precious steed. Henceforth a sword replaced the shorter dagger, and from his lesser duties he was freed, thus destined by his birth and well acquitted into an order he was now admitted. Ah, well could I report for many days amazing things to everyone who hears and higher than the most delightful tales his life will be esteemed in coming years. For what in poetry and fiction charms, yet to our mind incredible appears, will here with greater pleasure still be heard, because it has in real event occurred the name of him whom providence has chosen, that wondrous things on earth he should achieve, whom I may often praise, though never sufficing, whose destiny we scarcely can believe, his name it is Humanus, saint and wise one, the best of men whom I did e'er perceive, by origin another name he bears, which with illustrious ancestors he shares. The aged brother would have spoken on, filled with the miracles that he did know, and he shall gladden us for many weeks with all the stirring facts he still can show. But he was interrupted, just as now his heart was pouring forth in fervent flow. The others softly in and out had passed, and deemed it time to intervene at last. When Mark had bowed before his hosts and prayed, in gratitude for the sustaining meal, the bowl of crystal water he requested, they brought what he had craved with friendly zeal. Hereafter led him to their festive hall, therein a sight unwanted to reveal. Of what he saw you soon will be aware, for everything shall be described with care. No ornament was here, the eye deluding, a cross-arched vault rose sternly from the ground, and thirteen chairs against the walls he noticed were like a pious chorus ranged around, by clever hands full, delicately carven. In front of each a little desk he found. Devotion seemed to fill the very air, fraternity and restfulness and prayer. Above each chair was hung a special shield, thirteen in all the number he espied. They seemed to be important, purposeful, no boast of ancestors in shallow pride. And Brother Mark, with longing all aglow, desired to learn what secret they did hide. Lo, in the middle one, the mystic sign, the cross, which clustering roses do entwine. Each object will arouse to life and action the soul which to its inspiration yields. Some places are adorned with swords and lances, while helmets hang above these other shields. Here battered weapons are to be discovered, such as one may collect on battlefields. There spears and banners come from distant lands, and even fetters here and iron bands. Each brother sinking down before his chair, in silent prayer profoundly rapt they rested. 
then softly chanted fervent hymns of thanks, by cheerfulness and piety suggested. With mutual blessing they retired to sleep, a short repose by fancies unmolested, but Mark remains, surrounded by a few, still wishing more attentively to view. Though tired in body, full awake his mind, preoccupied by many hidden things, for here his thirst in raging flames appeasing, a dragon is enthroned with fiery wings. And here between his jaws a bear is holding an arm from which the blood it loses springs. Both shields, in distance corresponding quite, hung next the rosy cross to left and right. And as he turns his gaze around him, the more he marvels at the art and splendor, the riches here seem lavished with intention. It seems as if it all is by itself made yonder. Should he feel wonder that the work is finished? Should he feel wonder that it's so conceived? It seems to him that he is only just beginning to come alive with heavenly delight perceived. The paths were wonderful that led thee here, the aged brother speaks unto his guest. Oh, let these Symbols bid thee stay until the many heroes' deeds we manifest. Our mysteries we will confide to thee, for what is here concealed can never be guessed, although thou wilt divine what here was done, endured and lost, and last what triumph won. Do not believe that but of times gone by the brother spake, here wonders never fail. And more and ever more thou shalt behold, until withdrawn is the enshrouding veil, one portal only, tis that thou hast passed. And if thou feel'st the call, O friend, prevail. The foremost court as yet thou didst attain, but worthy art the very core to gain. Close quote. After a short rest, our brother Mark initially learns to get a sense of at least something of the interior. He has let the ascent of the human self work on his soul in significant symbols, and when after a short rest he is awakened by a signal, he comes to a gateway but finds it locked, and he hears a strange triad, three beats, and as if everything is suffused with a flute playing. He cannot look inside, cannot see what is happening in the room. We need to be told nothing more than these few words, for it to be indicated in a profound way what awaits the human being when they approach the spiritual worlds, when they have been so far purified and perfected by the work on their self that they have passed through the astral world and then approached the higher worlds, those worlds in which the spiritual archetypes of things here on earth are to be found, when they approach what in esoteric Christianity is called the heavenly world, then they at first approach it through a world of flooding colors, and then they enter into a world of tones, into cosmic harmony, the harmony of the spheres. The spiritual world is a world of tones. The person who has developed their higher self upward to higher worlds must settle into this spiritual world. Goethe, in particular, clearly expressed the higher experience of a world of spiritual sound in his title Faust, when he has Faust carried away to heaven, and the heavenly world reveals itself to him through sound. Quote, the sun orb sings in emulation, mid brother spheres, his ancient round. Close quote. The physical sun does not resound, but the spiritual sun resounds. Goethe captures the image when Faust, after long wanderings, is transported up into the spiritual worlds. Quote, Sounding loud to spirit hearing, see the newborn day appearing, pealing rays and trumpet blazes, the unheard can no one hear. Close quote. Through the symbolic world of colors of the astral, the human being, as they develop upward, approaches the world of the harmony of the spheres, the devaconic realm, that which is spiritual music. Only softly, emerging softly, does our brother Mark hear the sound of the inner world, which is behind our outer world, 
when he has passed through the first gateway, the gateway of the astral. That inner world which transforms the lower world of the astral into that higher world which is suffused by the triad. And as we ascend to the higher world, the human being's lower nature is transformed into the higher trinity. Our astral body is transformed into the spirit self, the etheric body into the life spirit, the physical body into the spirit human being. Brother Mark first senses the triad of higher nature in the music of the spheres, and by becoming one with this music of the spheres, the first sense of the rejuvenation of the human being who enters into contact with the spiritual worlds dawns on him. He sees, as in a dream, rejuvenated humanity floating through the garden in the form of the three youths carrying three torches. This is the moment when Mark's soul has awakened out of darkness in the morning, where the darkness is still a little there, the light has not yet penetrated it, but it is precisely at this time that the soul can look into the spiritual world. It can look into the spiritual worlds just as it can look into them when the summer noon has passed, when the sun grows weaker and weaker and winter has set in. And then at midnight the Christ principle shines through the earth during holy night. Through the Christ principle the human being is raised to the higher trinity, which is represented to Brother Mark in the three youths who represent rejuvenated humanity. This is what Goethe expressed in the saying, quote, And until thou truly hast this dying and becoming, thou art but a troubled guest, or the dark earth roaming. Close quote. Every year anew, Holy Night should indicate for those who understand esoteric Christianity that what happens in the outer world is an expression, a gesture of inner spiritual events. The outer power of the sun manifests in the spring and summer sun. In the Holy Scriptures, this outer power of the sun, which is only the proclamation of the inner spiritual power of the sun, is expressed in John, whereas the inner spiritual power is expressed in Christ. And as the physical power of the sun increasingly wanes, its spiritual power increases and becomes stronger and stronger until it is at its strongest around Christmas. This forms the basis of the words in the Gospel of John, I must decrease, but he must increase. And he increases and increases and appears where the power of the sun has again attained outer physical power. In order for the human being to be able to venerate and worship this spiritual power of the sun in its outer physical power, they must learn to recognize the meaning of the Christmas festival. For the human being who does not recognize this meaning, the new power of the sun is nothing other than the old physical power. But the person who has acquainted themselves with the impulses which esoteric Christianity and the Christmas festival in particular are meant to give them, will see in the growing power of the body of the sun, the outer body of the inner Christ, who shines through the earth, who gives it life and fertilizes it, so that the earth itself becomes the bearer of the power of Christ, of the earth spirit. In this way, that which is born to us every Christmas night is born to us anew each time. Christ will let us perceive within ourselves the microcosm in the macrocosm, and this perception will lead us ever higher. What has long since become something outer to the human being, the festivals, will again appear in its deep significance for human beings when they are led through such deep esotericism to the knowledge that what happens externally in nature as thunder and lightning Sunrise and sunset, moonrise and moonset, is the gesture and physiognomy of spiritual existence. And at the important points which are marked by our festivals, the human being should recognize that significant events also take place in the spiritual world. 
Then they will be led to the rejuvenating spiritual power which is indicated to us in the three youths, which the I capital can only gain by devotion to the outer world, not by egotistically closing itself off from it. But there is no devotion to the outer world if the outer world is not infused by the Spirit. That this Spirit should appear every year anew for all people, even for the weakest, as a light in the darkness, that should be written into people's hearts and souls every year anew. This is also what Goethe wanted to express in this poem titled The Mysteries. It is both a Christmas and an Easter poem. It aims to point to deep secrets of esoteric Christianity. If we allow the deep secrets of Rosicrucian Christianity to act on us, if we absorb even part of its power, then we will become missionaries for at least some of those around us. We will succeed in turning these festivals into something filled with spirit and life. Quote, when after short repose within his cell, a deep resounding bell awakes our guest, his soul is filled with longing for devotion. He rises quickly with unwearied zest and hastens to the church with all his heart responding to the gladly heard behest, obedient, peaceful, and by prayer bestirred. Alas, the door is locked, he stands deterred. But hark, a blow on dull resounding oar, three times in equal intervals renewed. No chime, it seems to be, of clock or bells. From time to time with tones of flute imbued, the floating music fills the heart with joy. Mysterious, tis and scarce to be construed, it sounds like singing, solemn and entrancing, to which the couples interlace in dancing. Bewildered and by strange emotion moved, he hastens to the window there to gaze. The day is dawning in the distant east, the sky o'erflown by loosened streaks of haze. And may he trust his eyes, a mystic light is fleeting through the garden's winding ways. Three youths with torches in their hands he sees, who haste along the paths between the trees. He clearly sees their wonderful apparel, the white resplendent garments which they wear, their girdles made of intertwining roses, the wreaths of flowers in their curly hair. They seem to come from some nocturnal dances, with joy of movement thrilled, enlivened, and fair. But as the stars will fade when day is near, extinguishing their torch, they disappear. Close quote. The end of lecture four.